Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Decluttering has become an industry, and many consider the act of virtue. Collectors have a different take. Andrea M. Noel believes collectors are born, not made, and they cannot help it. The many objects she has collected while living in New York, Paris, and Atlanta are the subject of What Lies Within, a new book by photographer Dale Niles. We'll hear about these unusual collections and how they're displayed in the book later this hour. First... The saying, never judge someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes, is at the heart of the Alliance Theater's new production, Trading Places. The 1980s film-turned-musical will have its world premiere on the Coca-Cola stage at the Alliance on May 25th. The cast and creative team include leading figures in Broadway, theater, TV, and film. Two of them join us now via Zoom. Tony Award-winning director and hometown hero Kenny Leon, along with actor, television, and film writer Thomas Lennon, who wrote the book for this musical. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us. Good to be with you. For those who are not familiar with the movie from 1983 with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd, Trading Places, how would you describe the story? The original film, which was a, a, a really a mega hit of that era, and took Eddie Murphy, who was on his rise to fame, and I think it really is what turned Eddie, Eddie into a household name, really. The premise was a, sort of a prince and the pauper, you know, if, if the prince were also a real sort of dim-witted, mean-spirited character in the, in the original film, the Dan Aykroyd character. So it took a very sort of a clever guy who lives on the street, Eddie Murphy, uh, the Duke brothers, basically, in, in the original film, 
make a bet to see if they could take take two people and basically throw them into each other's lives, and would they survive or thrive or or not? You know, what what would happen to these two people? It's sort of the original premise of the film. Yeah, really, a more than a thought experiment. It's a human experiment, and a mean spirited one at that. Thomas, what appealed to you about adapting this film into a stage musical? Number one thing, Kenny Leon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I can't tell you the... You know, there's to, to write a musical uh, based on a film, you're always going to stand in the long shadow of a popular film. And when Kenny came into the project and brought in a lot of new ideas that I'll let him tell you about... That's when it started to seem like, oh, this is this is Trading Places is a musical that does not need to stand in the shadow of the movie. If you saw the film, I think you'll it will take nothing away from your enjoyment of this. But maybe I'll let Kenny talk about how different it is, and I think the fact that it's it will I hope stand very much on its own. Kenny, oh yeah, of course. I mean, you know, Tom Lennon is a genius of a writer, you know, of Reno 9/11 fame and. You put him together with Alan Zachary and Michael Werner, who are doing wonderful things with his music. I never think about uh, the source material almost on anything that I do. You know, I always try to make the play or the film adaptation relate to audiences who are sitting in their seats or in their living rooms today. So when Tom and the crew approached me about Trading Places, I said, wow, the only thing that makes it interesting if actually the people in the musical could trade places. You know, we have a gay character, we have a black character, we have white characters, we have Asian characters. We have, you know, we had a mix of people and metaphorically they'll represent all the people in the world. And it's timely because that's what we need to do today. Like just change places for five minutes with someone, learn five minutes of someone else's life and it, it should make our own lives better. You know, we had two ears and one mouth. So it's like, we need to listen to other folks. So it's a musical comedy that's about listening to each other and it's inspired by the uh, Paramount film, but it has uh, nothing to do with that, that film. This is a wonderful, happy, loving musical about listening to each other and respecting each other and how uh, all lives should have equal value. And that's it, it's fun, you know? And, and Fatima Robinson is doing the choreography, so it's be fun, fun, fun dance, Fun words provided by Tom Lennon and great <laughs> by Alan and Michael. So, you know, and I get to do it in Atlanta. I get to do it at a theater that, um, you know, I think like 17 years ago, I did something on that stage. But basically 20 years ago was when I when I left here. And I've always considered Atlanta home. So to be here to do this play before we birth this baby into the world is real important and an exciting time in my life. So you really have so much wrapped up in this, not the least of which is sentiment about the Alliance Theater, where you were artistic director and moved the theater forward in important ways. Is that part of the reason you wanted to return to Atlanta to direct the show as well? It's always great to home for the last 20 years, 80% of the time I've been on the road, you know, but, uh, you know, me and my family have kept the home here in Cobb County. So it's actually great to be home, number one, for two months. 
I can't remember the last time I was home for two months. And, and secondly, to be with this creative team to, to show them around Atlanta, that's exciting. In the midst of accepting Tony Awards and Image Awards and Emmy nominations, I've always been reminded that I cut my teeth in Atlanta, Atlanta's home. And uh, I am who I am because of the people in this city, you know, and uh, it's the city where we call the mayor by the first name, you know, and it's the city that hosted the Olympics. It's the city that has six historically black colleges. It's the city where I met Maynard Jackson, the, the best mayor and the first black mayor of Atlanta. So, you know, I've, I've, and the city where I got to know John Lewis and the city where I got to know Reverend Joseph Lowry, the city where I got to know the King family. So this is home and I'm proud of that. And it's great to come home to be able to celebrate the people in this community, to celebrate with them this um, birth of this new musical. Mm. Kenny was saying how the musical is inspired by the premise of the film, but in fact is very different from the film, importantly for today. Thomas, was it challenging for you to reimagine the story through today's societal lens? I mean, there are things in the movie that are problematic racially. There's homophobic language. That's all in the past. Uh, absolutely. I think the, the biggest trick would have been to attempt to do something that was copying the movie at all. So you know, with Kenny's guidance and with a really great team, we we sort of dismantled, we're like, well, let's step way, way back from this canvas and look at what what would make us want to see the show today and feel like it told us something today. For starters, we, we've changed uh, Billy Ray, the character that was played by Eddie Murphy in the film is now played by Anissa Folds, who's a brilliant actress and singer. She's uh, you can see her with Freestyle Love Supreme. So we have a woman who is trading places with the character of Lewis is played by Bryce Pinkham, who's a great Broadway star. So we've got issues of do people not take Billy Ray series because of her gender or, do, you know, and, and so we've got, we swam directly at many of the problem, the problematic things of the film. And instead of sweeping them under the rug or kind of working around them, we swam directly for them and mm -hmm. said, let's make this what it's about. You know, so that said, if you know me and my, my work on Reno 911, my comedy never comes from a place of fear. I still think it's a pretty bold show with, with big humor, but it's also a show that, if you also have seen my work, one of the main things about while Reno 911 is can feel completely over the top and, you know, it doesn't feel like it's abiding by any rules. I think you can also tell that most of my comedy comes from a place of joy and being pretty upbeat. So the, in the new show, I think really we, we took complicated things and we said, let's make these opportunities to really talk about stuff. You know, the, the character of Jamie Lee Curtis in the film has been completely reimagined. How so? Yeah, well, actually, that character is now a character called Phil, who uh, sings at a piano bar. So there's, you know, it's also not, not that I'm saying we were trying to necessarily make it a much more family show, 
but it is a show for sure that you could take your family to. And it's a joyous, upbeat show that I think has we've some of the cynicism and a little bit of the some of the rough stuff from the film has definitely been turned into more joyous, I think, fun. It's honestly, it's a really, really fun show to see. So the thought experiment that is at the center of the plot line about trading places has to do with nature versus nurture. How does the stage musical version treat that aspect of it? Do we walk away with the moral to this story? Yeah, that's why you have to come see the show. <laughs> I want to. <laughs> Kenny's, like, not gonna, Kenny's not going to spoil it. Wow. <laughs> yeah, all I say is that I, I'm trying to spend more and more time talking about what's on the page and what's on the stage versus trying to c- compare it to something that was created in 1983 that is inspired by. All I can say is that the debate about nurture versus nature leads right into the debates that we're having in our country today uh, about um, gender and sexual fluidity and all that stuff. But what I want to like to remember is we are doing a musical comedy, almost like it's a world premiere. It's, a, it's the first time that we're singing, we're dancing. Theater brings all those elements in. You know, this is not a movie. This is not a, a comedy or drama. It's a musical comedy that allows one to express themselves through dance, through singing, through words. And um, I think at the end of the day, the best way to describe this is at the beginning of the musical, we have two older white men sitting at a table that is probably two feet wide and they won't let anyone around that table when they're in the office. It's just that table and them doing their stocks and their business. And then at the end of the play, what you see is a table that is 20 feet long headed by a black woman that invites everybody to be at that table. So you take those two images, you start with two men at a small table and you end with everybody at a long, big table, which is we're trying to say, we just gotta make the table bigger in our country. The table should include everyone. All those things that were problematic with the film, I can guarantee you there's nothing homophobic about this musical comedy. There is nothing racist about it. (laughs) And uh, it's a very loving play, uh, musical that I'm excited to like, to bring into the world. Tony Award-winning director Kenny Leon with actor, TV, and film writer Thomas Lennon, who wrote the book for the new musical Trading Places. The world premiere of the Alliance Theatre production is on the Coca-Cola stage tonight and runs through June 26th. More information will be on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, popular Atlanta playwright Topher Payne tells us about evolving problematic children's books through his project, Topher Fixed It. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Children's books such as Love You Forever, The Rainbow Fish, and The Giving Tree are classics cherished by countless readers. But have you ever read one of those books and thought, wow, this ending is a little problematic? Well, Atlanta playwright Topher Payne has got you covered with his project, Topher Fixed It. He provides parody alternative endings to beloved but problematic children's literature. Topher Payne joins me now via Zoom to tell us more about the project, Topher Welcome back to City Lights. We've missed you. Oh, Lois, I've missed you too. It's good to be back. So please tell us what initially sparked this interest of yours to fix classic children's stories. Well, it was inspired during lockdown from a project done by the Atlanta Artist Relief Fund, where they were doing story times at five o'clock a couple of days a week for kids at home. It gave Atlanta performers the opportunity to get in front of some kind of an audience. And you know, we're not going to turn that down. <laughs> and I don't have children myself. So I only had a certain number of children's books in my house. And most of them were books from my own childhood. And one of them was Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree. It's a beautiful book, but also even as a child was not one of my favorites. I was very much team tree and felt like <laughs> she really got a bum rap in that story. Yeah, I agree. And so for the kids on story time, I thought it would be fun to do an alternative ending to the giving tree where the tree had a better day, darn it. And um, maybe that was just very much on my mind during lockdown. Really? And so I created an alternate ending called The Tree Who Set Healthy Boundaries and read that on Storytime and made it available for download on my website for free, just for any parents who may want to print out a copy because I changed the illustrations and had fun with it. And Within a week, I had two million downloads. <laughs> Talk about hungry for alternative endings. 
Topher, would you read your version, The Tree Who Set Healthy Boundaries for Us? Absolutely. With each story, I have a key moment where things take a turn, where mm. a different choice could be made by one of the characters in the story. And in The Tree Who Set Healthy Boundaries, it's after the boy comes asking for her branches to build a house. It extends a little bit, so I'm just going to take the very ending of it, and I think you'll get the gist. Eventually, the boy had a son of his own, and much later, the son of the boy had his own family too. Because of their friendship, the boy was successful and fulfilled, and the tree grew wider and stronger, standing tall and beautiful in the forest for many, many, many years, plus a few years even more than that. And as each generation played in her strong old branches, the tree often thought back to the fateful day when the boy had asked her for a house. In truth, she would have gladly given him her branches to build one. She would have given him her trunk to build a boat. She loved him that much. But then she would have had nothing left, not for herself nor anyone else. And there never would have been a home for the red squirrels. There'd have been no hide and seek with the boy's grandchildren, no bakery with the best apple pies anyone ever tasted. Setting healthy boundaries is a very important part of giving. It assures you'll always have something left to give. And so the tree was happy. Everyone was. The end. I think. That is indeed a happy ending. And you make such an important point about suffering and sacrifice and even some very grim turns in children's stories. Speaking of grim, I mean, I had some real problems with those fairy tales. <laughs> I think it's essential to present stories to children that don't necessarily have a happy ending, that don't necessarily have the best choices made by every character. I am a storyteller. I love the complexities of that. But it also requires a conversation between the reader and the child about what choices are made. And one of the frustrations that I have specifically about The Giving Tree is that it's often used as an example, particularly to young women or girls, about the nature of a loving relationship. And the tree ends up completely diminished by the end of that story. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong in the original telling. What I'd hoped with the alternate endings and what I did on Storytime with each one of the alternate endings is use the alternate as an opportunity to expand that discussion with the kid about here's one way things could have gone, here's another way things could have gone, and what does it mean for the characters in the story when those choices are made. Kids are savvy. They may not know specifically why a story makes them cry, but giving them the alternate ending is an opportunity to to allow for nuance to develop in a child's brain, to understand the repercussions of choices. And 
at the end of the day, Lois, I swear they're just meant to, to be goofy and amusing, but you know, I've always got some kind of second motivation behind anything I write. <laughs> well, you may not have children of your own yet, but you're a very thoughtful teacher, Topher. The points you make are valid. What other children's books have you fixed so far? I did The Rainbow Fish by Marcus Pfister, which is the story of a beautiful glittering fish who gives away all of his beautiful glittering scales to everyone else so that they'll like him. So I have The Rainbow Fish keeps his scales and he learns not to diminish himself for the comfort of others. And the Pout Pout Fish, which is a, a more recent book, that was one that a lot of parents came to me with after I put out the initial alternate endings. And I have The Fish Who Isn't Pouting, That's Just His Face. And then I Love You Forever, which turned out to be, I guess, the official children's book of Canada based upon the response. <laughs> and so that one in, landed me on the national news in Canada defending myself. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> Canadians are so kind. They'll apolo- you know I bet they apologize to you for... Really, Lois? Have you ever been to a hockey game? I'm telling you, <laughs> these people can turn. <laughs> Yeah, but then you meet them, you know? I mean, look at Kevin Galiz. Oh, well, sure. If they were all like Kevin, we'd all be doing great. The interesting thing about Love You Forever is what I found with that one, the origin story of Love You Forever by Robert Munch is quite, quite sad. And I found that people were standing in defense and support of the book primarily because of the impulse that the author had behind writing it, which I thought was really, really interesting and and was really instructive for me on how people receive art, that it isn't just what's on the page. It's also those that are familiar with the impulse behind it that very much colors their experience of the work. And it was a really good reminder of that. And I like to think it opened up some interesting conversations. And then I tried to just keep reminding people that the original books remain unaltered on your shelf. I haven't taken anything away. (laughs) Canadians were worried. They were very worried. They were very worried. (laughs) And you said in their beautiful way, sorry. Yeah, uh, so sorry, but you're a terrible person. I'm like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with Atlanta favorite Topher Payne. The playwright has recently taken on the challenge of fixing endings to problematic children's books. With his project, Topher Fixed It. You know, I have had similar concerns. Well, I've had very vocal opinions, actually, Uh, not only with children's stories, but with opera endings. Oh, of course. For example, I really wanted Madame Butterfly 
not to fall face forward on the sword, but to point the sword at Pinkerton, who is one of the most evil villains in all of art. (laughs) Point the sword, of course, she's not going to kill him, but she gets on the boat with that adorable little boy and sails to the U.S. and becomes the early 20th century model for the ideal single mother. My God, Lois, you need to get on this. (laughs) That's exactly the point behind it. It's satisfying that impulse because, of course, what makes Madame Butterfly, what makes Romeo and Juliet the powerful works that they are is that ending. It's that desire as an audience member, as someone receiving the story to you're so emotionally invested and so emotionally engaged you want you crave that happy ending and the denial of it is often what gives the work the lasting power that it has in the alternate endings i think this is very much a product of this is very much art made in 2020 and 2021 this is taking that desire, taking that impulse and just saying, you know what, let's explore the best possible outcome here. Let's give ourselves the satisfaction of what the best possible outcome would look like. And I think we culturally and individually have kind of earned that lately. And that's an itch that could really use a scratch right now. Again, hoping that it inspires conversation about the original work. So are you finished with the alternative endings project, or are you still taking on children's classics? I am definitely taking on suggestions. The most requested that I won't be doing is green eggs and ham. Because, <laughs> You're kosher. Well, it, no, it's just such a, uh, it, there's not much of an alternate ending there. It's, you know, he would say, you know, do you like green eggs and ham? No, I don't. Well, then have a very nice day. It was nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> and so it doesn't really go anywhere. But I've definitely had an eye on Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I may have something else to put out into the world. If you are taking suggestions, I have more than a few, but I, I won't give you all of them. Oh, we'll, we'll talk after we turn these mics off. Otherwise, I'd have to give you credit. <laughs> <laughs> there was a book. It was not a picture book, but it, it was a young, whatever they called, I guess, a chapter book. I was in third grade. There was this book, Beautiful Joe. I am writing this down as you say it. Go on. I still have nightmares because this wonderful dog was abused by his evil human. And I know there was supposed to be, you know, a good part in there somewhere, but I still have nightmares. And while you're at it, old yeller, Bambi... (laughs) (laughs) The land before time. I know you said children must learn about loss, but do we need to do that when they're so young? I mean, that's the challenge, isn't it? That's a challenge for all of us as artists is 
how do you explore those concepts? And there's a reason that Old Yeller traumatized all of us (laughs) and the loss of Bambi's mother. I do think it's, yes, I think it's essential. I also think it's, that's the beautiful thing about children's literature when you have the relationship between the young person and the reader, when it's a moment of connection between the two of them, there's the opportunity to create a safe space to explore dangerous things. Again, with the alternate endings, it's also reminding them the beauty and safety of, and it's just a story. Ah, now, many of our listeners are familiar with your edgier stories, uh, (laughs) those that have been staged. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with the feel-good films you've written for the Hallmark Channel. Do you have anything new in the pipeline there, Topher? Unfortunately, I don't have anything new coming out. Well, they are delightful. It's interesting to me to be talking with you about these alternative endings, particularly after Stephen Sondheim has died, because with James Lapine, he took an extended essay by the child psychoanalyst Bruno Bettelheim on the uses of enchantment, it was called, and turned it into this brilliant musical into the woods. I think that's what you are doing is very much at the essence of how children process stories. Absolutely. And using Sondheim as such a fantastic example of how children's stories stay with us, how foundational they are to our understanding of storytelling. So it's not surprising that one of the masters of the art form returns to the very stories he was presented as a child and starts exploring what if, what is into the woods, if not one giant what if of the stories that we were presented as children. Well, Topher Payne, this has been delightful as always talking with you. And I thank you so very much. Well, thank you. People can find the alternate endings on my website. They're available for free download. I'm not trying to make any money off this. And you can print them in the exact same size as the pages in the original books. And also I've partnered with a wonderful designer named Charlie Cody, um, who is doing t-shirts of the alternate ending book covers. And you can find those at shoptheoryandcolor.com. And you can get your own tree who set healthy boundaries (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt. And I should ask you, who created the illustrations for your books? Uh, That was Charlie Cody. And yeah, we worked together on that. Oh, that's great. Maybe he could come up with something a a bit more sinister for my alternative Madam Butterfly ending. I'm going to have him take a look at Beautiful Joe, and we're going to see if we can fix your childhood, Lois. Atlanta playwright Topher Payne. His Topher fixed it 
children's book endings can be downloaded free of charge from his website, Topher Payne, that's P-A-Y-N-E, dot com. Coming up, a peek inside the mind and home of the eclectic collector Andrea M. Noel. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Decluttering has become a huge industry, and many even consider it a virtue. Collectors have a different take. Andrea M. Noel believes collectors are born, not made, and they can't help it. The many objects she has collected while living in New York, Paris, and Atlanta are the subject of What Lies Within, a new book by photographer Dale Niles. The author joins us now via Zoom with the collector, Andrea M. Noel. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. We're happy to be here. Thank you. Andrea, please tell us what you first began to collect. When I was a little girl, I collected bottle caps and matchbook covers. That, that was the beginning. Oh, wow. Well, in the introduction, Dale writes that you believe things are too often discarded when they can still be used. I'm curious about the meaning you find in these objects. And we're not speaking about monetary value. Why did you want to keep used items? I think the collecting thing is an interest in variation on a theme. I don't think it's really collecting old discarded things. I think it's seeing the variety that exists in one item, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And as we journey through the book, we learn more about that and see it beautifully illustrated. Dale, the book is gorgeously photographed. How did the two of you decide to collaborate on this project? Well, in the beginning, I was a part of Slow Exposures, which is a photography festival down in Zebulon, Georgia. And I was a volunteer, and Andrea also was a volunteer, a friend of mine suggested that I might want to photograph her items. At that point, I had no idea how many things it was. When I asked her if I could do that, she presented me with a letter of a list of how many different items she had the next time I saw her. And I went to her house soon after that, and I'm standing there, and I thought I had no idea what lies within. And that's why the name of the book, because I didn't know exactly the multitude, because the list was about 60 different categories of collective items. And how many objects? 
a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Numerous. I don't even know how to even say how many, but you know, they're not always out, which some people think that that's the case. They are neatly boxed up or put away and, you know, categorized. And I think the fact that when Andrea goes out to like a flea market or an estate sale and she finds something that she collects, that kind of makes her want to get back home and see, oh, what do I have in this collection? And then she may bring it out at that point to revisit it, to see what else she has. In the book, the items look beautifully presented and and well-organized. In your home, Andrea, how much is actually on display of your collection? I would say virtually nothing (laughs) at any one given time. As Thale said, it comes out when there's a stimulus, i.e. I've gotten an example and I'm curious to what I've got. And then there are big shows where I I get everything out like the dollhouses and decorate the dollhouses and invite people to come. And that stays out for about six weeks. And so there's there's various things going on. But really, there's no collection that sits out all the time. So this is different from, I'll give a personal example. I know someone in Chicago who started collecting napkin rings, sterling silver napkin rings. And then she wanted her son to have a collection. And as a young boy, he began collecting beer cans, which soon were filling floor-to-ceiling display cases in their recreation room. And there are salt and pepper shakers, and I can go on. This is not part of your aesthetic to keep everything on display in your home. That's correct. It it just comes out for a show, either for my friends or for myself, really. Okay. Dale, in your practice of photography, you explore family histories through still life and constructed images in What ways did working with Andrea reflect your own work? Well, I think that I do like photographing with people and kind of their life story kind of thing. It's a little bit documentary, but a little bit not. You know, at first, I think that I was taking pictures, I felt, for documentation, but then it became more of an art form and arranging them differently. And then I, you know, we kind of got into, I snuck Andrea into some of the pictures and, (laughs) and then, and then she was a willing subject for a little bit. And that was nice to, um, you know, have her be a part of it to get that human element in there. But, you know, she does all the dollhouse arranging because all the dollhouses are set up by scale and everything is perfect. So, you know, but there are some things that I arrange. So it was a collaborative, you know, part on the, each of us. The subtitle of the book is The Eclectic Collections of Andrea M. Noel. I must 
emphasize that this is not an elite approach to collecting. We're not talking about 18th century French porcelain or multi-million dollar paintings. There are buttons, rulers, Barbie and Ken dolls. Would you tell us about the layout of the book and how it presents the categories within the collection? Well, the first thing I photographed when I went to Andrea's house was her kitchen utensils, which range from like, you know, graters to measuring cups, you know, anything you can think of you would use in the kitchen. And she had them laid out on a green tablecloth and it was really a nice presentation. And, you know, cause we've worked on this for nearly eight years <laughs> and, um, it kind of morphed into, I was looking at the images after I took them and a lot of the things were on like her floor is a beautiful brown wood floors and her furniture is beautiful, but everything started to look like a brown background. So we mm -hmm. did take some coloration and do, you know, the background, some of them in color or just white, just to give it a little diversity that way. And would you talk about the layout of the book in terms of the categories? Well, Lori Schock, of course, was the book designer. And then Barbara Griffin was the editor because over that many years, I had taken thousands of images, literally. And I narrowed it down to 300 and Barbara came in and narrowed it down to 156 what's in the book. And she had the idea of the different chapters, which I liked because that kind of separated it and didn't really make it like all the same things were in the same group, you know, so it wouldn't look all the so much sameness. And that way, when you turn a page, it's something different. And I liked the way that made the book flow. Would you talk about the quotes from the early 20th century German philosopher Walter Benjamin that appear throughout the book? Yes, he's no longer living, but he was a German Jewish gentleman and he collected books. And a lot of what he said, I think, applies to a lot of collectors. He spent a lot of his time actually, you know, running from the Germans, but he he was adamant about his book collection. And it was just a nice connection to have you know, with a collective theme. One of the quotes particularly resonated with me. To renew the old world, that is the collector's deepest desire when driven to acquire new things. When I read that, it stirred a memory from, oh gosh, almost 20 years ago, a discovery I made when helping my mother move to an assisted living home, I came across a pair of eyeglasses she had saved that belonged to her mother, my grandmother, who died in middle age. And she didn't have a lot of worldly possessions. But I didn't know my mother had saved these eyeglasses of my grandmother. And it just stirred such a 
profound connection for me. My grandmother died when I was a baby. I never knew her. But suddenly this seemed like a possession that was, what can I say, invaluable, beyond value. And I thought about that with many of the items that are photographed in the book and that appear in Andrea's collection. And I was hoping perhaps you, Andrea, could talk about the personal meaning in these otherwise mundane objects. What stories they hold for you? Well, <laughs> the stories that I find most interesting basically are the people who don't know what the items are. I had a friend my age who didn't know what a darning egg was. Now, he was a gentleman, but I was surprised at that. They usually don't know what the wetters are, which were the little porcelain items that almost everybody had to wet the envelopes or the stamps before. So it's more surprising what people don't know. <laughs> so it's sort of a museum function that your collection provides. Yes, probably that. It's not so much who owned it, but I've learned from the association with Dale that I collect a lot of very, very ordinary things, which you brought out. It's not silver or napkin holders or anything that's worth anything, really. And that's really one thing that attracted me to this is the fact that she has gathered and how she stores them and brings them out makes them special, I think. And I enjoy seeing them. I mean, we've had a great time. I mean, seriously, it's like going to somebody's house for a play visit. <laughs> but on the theme of, you know, you were saying how you became nostalgic. And I think that anybody that looks at this book is going to be connected to something because there's such a variety and it's going to spark some memory with someone. I didn't know what soap savers were. And what is a soap saver? It is a small metal little cage with a handle and you put like chips of soap in it so you can swish it in the water to make, you know, soapy water to clean your dishes. So you're using every little bit of it. And Andrea uses one every day. Yes, she does. <laughs> That's fantastic. This kind of flies in the face of all the decluttering advocates and people who encourage us to downsize our surroundings. Do you ever feel like you've collected too many things, Andrea? Indeed, yes. <laughs> Indeed. The, the idea of the pressed aluminum items, when I got those out for Dale to photograph, I was so overcome by the amount of things that I had that I said, cover me up with these and take a picture, which she did. And it's in the book. In fact, it's on the front of the book. It's but it was wonderful. that feeling, oh, horrors, look what I have. <laughs> but it was fun. It was also that one I sort of orchestrated yeah. because of my feelings about it. I still like it and I still buy it occasionally, but I have an awful lot of it. What about the Barbie and Ken dolls? Well, 
I lived in New York and there were a lot of things thrown away. I had never liked particularly Barbie for my daughter, but I found these two Barbies thrown away and they looked like little call girls. They were really shoddy looking. <laughs> and somehow I took them and kept them. And that was the beginning of the Barbies and the cans. And all really secondhand, all used. They are unclothed in some of the photos. That's a product of the fact that they are so difficult to dress. So generally on the secondhand market, they come naked because they really are hard to get the clothes on the dolls. And I think the little girls just don't always do it. And then the mother sweeps them off to the thrift shop and I connect with them. Andrea, do you have plans to create a museum or at some point donate your collections for display beyond your home? Well, I only have a fantasy, which I will tell you. And it is that when I'm gone, my daughter comes to my home and lives and part of it and sets up the rest of it as a museum of collections. Some will be on display that are my collections, but we will invite, well, she will invite other collectors to come and have an exhibit. Collector Andrea M. Noel and photographer Dale Niles. More information about the photography book, What Lies Within, is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., We'll get details on this weekend's 45th annual Atlanta Jazz Festival. Plus, we'll hear about the photography of country music legend Kenny Rogers. His works are on view now at the Booth Museum in Cartersville. City Light senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.